school coming on, for me, it's easier if I pick a book of the Bible and know that I'm going to start where I ended. So, since I've been preaching fairly regularly, I've decided to do a series on the book of Romans. Um, I don't think you'll get tired of it. I've been personally studying the book of Romans for the last couple months, and uh, just reading through it and meditating on it, and I think in light of the gospel, in light of what God has called us to as believers, Romans is a really good book for us to be clear on what the gospel is, what God has done, why we need the gospel, and that God's love for his people has not ended. And so um, I want us to start here. We'll read Romans chapter 1, 1 through 7. It says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord through whom we receive grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So this book is written, as we see, by Paul. That's um, pretty clear. And I think it's important that we remember who Paul was. It's, I mean, we assume that we know he was an apostle. We, the majority of us probably know the story of Paul, how he was on his way to imprison Christians when Christ met him on the road to Damascus. And this same Paul, God has turned his zeal for the law to a zeal for the gospel and for his Savior, Jesus Christ. So Paul is writing this letter to the Romans for what purpose? And I think it would be helpful if we turn to Romans chapter 15, because I believe this is where we see Paul's purpose in writing the book of Romans. And if you turn to chapter 15, verse 15... He says, it is a a large section, but we'll stop as we read to, to point out some things. But I have written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again. So he's saying, you already know these things. All these things that I have said up to chapter 15, which we will in time know. I have written... Boldly to you on all these things to remind you. Again, because of the grace that was given me from God. To be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. Ministering as a priest the gospel of God so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable. Sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So a big part of his writing this 
book, this letter to the Romans is a letter to the Gentiles. This is really important. That doesn't mean that he's leaving out the Jews, because if you read the book of Romans, he's constantly talking about his love for his brothers, the people of Israel. And so he, it's not, a, but one big part of it is he is encouraging them as Gentiles and Jews to come together in unity. That their distinction prior to the death of Christ on the cross is no longer. And we'll see that very clearly, I believe. And then he says, Therefore, in Christ Jesus I have found, in verse 17, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. For I will not presume to, to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. So he's careful to say, look, I, when I boast, it's not in what I have done, it's what Christ has done through me. As a bondservant, if we think back to ch- chapter 1, the first reference that he says to, of himself you know, God has used me because I have sold myself to Him. He has bought me with a price. He says, through, through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. And this will go back, when we think back to what we just read, he talks about the obedience of faith, and we'll talk more about that. So, Obedience is a sign of faith. I think that's something people miss when they read the book of Romans because they hear justification by faith and they, people want to say, well, Paul and James weren't on the same page. And that's just a mess. Because Paul, Paul starts out with obedience of faith. That way there's no confusion when he gets to justification by faith that our faith creates works of righteousness, not because we have it, but in Christ we are empowered to live holy lives. And then verse 19 he says, In the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and around about as far as, this is a hard word to say, Elucrum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Now, if you don't know, I. I was going to bring a map, but I forgot, so I didn't forget. I just didn't have time. So here's uh, Italy. There's a really bad drawing there. We've got Greece there, somewhere over here. So this is the Mediterranean Sea. So Israel somewhere over here. So Antioch which is the church that sent Paul out, is over here. And Paul has preached the gospel through this whole area. It's pretty incredible. Um, All his journeys, he's hit cities that are mainly ports. um, And this is kind of an island, actually. But um, I know it's not a great drawing. Maybe I should bring... Uh, one next time. But so all these cities, you know, Ephesus, uh, Corinth, um, Thessalonica up here. And then he's also on his first journey, he actually comes over here to some back or what we would call podunk towns called Darby. 
and Lystra. And so if you look at a map of all his journeys, he's hit all the major cities as well as these towns. And it's interesting, in Lystra and Derby, that's where um, Timothy is living and where he hears the gospel. So, um, and becomes a disciple of Peter, or of Paul. So, Elicrum is actually a region here. And so what he's saying is, Paul is saying, I have preached the gospel and believe that God has sent me to every possible town. All these are ports, major city hubs. Antioch was a huge city hub. So all these hubs are there for one purpose, and God is using the connectedness of the Roman Empire to spread the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. So they don't. if, if we think of the church in Rome, no one knows how the church started there. It wasn't started by an apostle. Many believe that there are many different aspects. One, that on the day of Pentecost, when Peter preached, there were people from Rome there. And that's clear in in the book of Acts. So some of those people, they went to Rome, and guess what? They want to preach the gospel. They've they've heard the gospel. They know the good news, and so they're going to share it. That should be a natural inclination for Christians. And then the other is... Paul has preached the gospel in all these port cities. Guess where all these port cities are going? To the city of Rome. So it's, it's very likely that some of these people who became Christians under Paul were on their way to Rome or ended up getting jobs in Rome or whatever it may be. And so there's a church in Rome that was not started by an apostle, but that is the effect of a church that was reaching the law. So... In this time, the majority of the Roman Empire had heard the gospel. That's pretty incredible when you think in that time the amount, the lack of communication skills that we have in our day, that the known world to them had been reached. Except, and this is where we get here in verse 20 and following. And thus I aspired to preach the gospel not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. For this reason I have often been prevented from coming to you. So he's saying, in God sending me to these different places, I haven't had the opportunity to come to Rome yet. Even though that foundation had not been built uh, by apostles, um, he's saying, God has prevented me from coming to you because he is making sure that the gospel is preached here. That main section over to the right is what they consider Asia. Where Lystra and Darby, that's where that's the region of Galatia, where we get the letter to the Galatians. Um, but it's modern-day Turkey, if you think about it. And um, so he has preached all over that area, and, and now he is writing this letter to tell them, I believe I'm coming to you, but on my way somewhere else. But now, with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you, 
Whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed, enjoyed your company for a while, but now I'm going to Jerusalem to serving the saints for Macedonian Acacia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Therefore, verse 28, when I finish this and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on my way by way of you to Spain. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessings of Christ. So, why is Paul writing this letter? One of the big reasons is he is desiring to have their support on his way to Spain, modern, modern day Spain. That, that was the one region that had not heard the gospel. And so Paul said, I'm going to come through Rome. I want to spend time with you. I'm not going to just say, come for a day and then out tomorrow. He's going to spend time with them in Rome. And then he wants to go. And this is actually just before he is arrested. So not many people know if he actually went to Rome, went to Spain or not. He was definitely in Rome, definitely encouraged the brothers in Rome, but we don't know um, whether he actually went to Spain. Um, anyways, so it's important for us to know a couple things. He doesn't. He has never been to Rome, and and though we see in verse chapter sixteen that. Many of the Romans, he knew people from Rome. He knew people that the Romans' church knew, but he had never been there himself. And so this letter is kind of like a, it's kind of like a introduction of himself to the Roman church. They've heard about Paul from people who have met Paul, like Priscilla and Aquila. He's, they've heard about him, but they, they've never actually heard his word. So Paul, by the Spirit, is inspired to write a letter to the Romans. And that's why if we see verse 1 through 7, it's the longest introduction that Paul gives in any of his books. Because he, is, he realizes they don't know him personally. And that he wants them to know who he is and what he's about. What's most important. So I think if we look back at verse 1, <coughs> it's really important that he puts a bondservant of Christ Jesus first. He doesn't put apostle first, which is interesting because in the book, both books of Corinthians, Timothy, um, Ephesians... Galatians and Colossians, he makes a big point to note that he is an apostle. Why? In those situations, the people that they're dealing with are trying to dispute his apostleship. But here in Rome, there wasn't an issue with his apostleship, and he wants them to know that he is sold out to Christ, that he is a slave to Christ, because that's the same idea. A bondservant, a slave. In the Roman times, a slave could come out of slavery. It's very interesting. There were actually governors who started as slaves. And in time, he became the governor of one of the regions of Rome. So what he's saying is, 
I am sold as a slave to Christ, that He is everything to me. I am bought with a price. And that is really important for what we see later on in this book. That Paul wants to emphasize his role as a servant of Christ. And not just a servant, but that that servitude is because of his calling. And that's what we see next. Called as an apostle. This apostleship, he doesn't say a bondservant of Christ Jesus as an apostle. He says called because it is important. The apostles were not self-appointed. Unlike what is going on now in America, in South America, Central America, where people are saying, well, I'm an apostle. And you ask him, well, how did you become an apostle? Oh, uh, this council of, of apostles said I'm an apostle. You're like, uh, where did that come from? And then they're saying all kinds of crazy things. But here, he is saying the calling came from somewhere else. It came from God on the day that he was going to murder and imprison Christians God called him on the road to Damascus and didn't just call him to be a a Christian alone, but he called him to be an apostle, to raise up churches, to found churches, and to disciple, which we all should be doing. And uh, I think... If we miss out on that, if we forget that it's a calling, we'll miss something else later on here in, in this text that we're reading today. So he's a bondservant of Christ. This is really important. And he is set apart here in the second. What is the purpose of, his, of being a servant of Christ and being called as a Paul? an apostle? He is set apart for the gospel of God. And this is really important again because he's not just a bondservant of Christ for no purpose. He has a purpose and he knows that purpose is the gospel of God. His purpose as an apostle is to preach the gospel. And so this being set apart is separated. Same same idea. Separated. So in in the Greek in other passages, it talks about how the Pharisees separated themselves to follow and obey the law. And in the same way, Paul here flips it. And he says, I have been separated for the purpose of or for the opportunity of following the gospel of God. So, Paul, who was a Pharisee, as we know, if you read in Timothy, he was a chief of them. He had great training, and yet here he has flipped it. He was once set apart, separated for the purpose of following the law and knowing the law. And now God has transformed him, and he is now set apart or separated for the gospel of God. What a transformation we we all have to go through. So his purpose 
as an apostle is to preach the gospel of God. I think it's important that he puts God here because he could have just said, set apart for the gospel. But he wants to make it clear in his writing that this is not just the gospel of Jesus Christ, who some would like to say is not God, but it is the gospel of God. This is God's plan from the beginning. And how do we know this? Verse 2, what does he say? Which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So Paul is basing his understanding of the gospel off of the Old Testament writings. And he's not just talking about the prophets as we know them, Ezekiel and Jeremiah, Isaiah, Daniel and Joel and Amos and Hosea, all these prophets. He's talking about every scripture that speaks of Christ. Every one. So if we think about it, David was an apostle, a, a prophet, right? The, the book of Psalms is full of prophecy about the coming Messiah. Moses was a prophet. Genesis, the book of Genesis is full of pictures of the coming Christ. The promise to Eve about the Messiah. So if you think about this, the entire Old Testament is a prophecy about the coming Christ. And so what Paul is saying is, God has promised all this. He has promised the gospel from the beginning. This is not a new thing. That's something that a lot of people miss out. We need the Old Testament because it is speaking of what God has been doing since the beginning of time. God has been preparing a people to be ready for the Messiah. And those like David who believed the promise that was in past, he's not left out in limbo. David was believing the promise, and therefore when Christ came, that promise was fulfilled. Complete. And that's how the Old Testament saints made it. They believed a promise. What's the difference? We're on the other side. The promise has already come. And we have to believe that the promise has come. That Christ is the Messiah. And that's the, the, the difference so Paul wants to make sure that they understand as well as us, I believe the Lord today, that this promise did not start in Matthew chapter 1. It didn't come when Christ came. The promise was fulfilled then, but it had been made since the beginning of time. That this promise of Christ coming. So what, what, do, what do these promises talk about? And that's where we get to verse 3. It says, Concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. And I'll read verse 4 because these two are contrasting. Who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is really important here. We're seeing a contrast. So this is what these promises are talking about. This is the substance of the promise. Verse 3, concerning his son. Paul starts out very clearly, whose son? Anybody want to answer? 
God's Son. He wants to make it clear from the beginning that Christ has always been God's Son. That Christ is eternal. He is not created. And that is really important because some people want to use verse 3 to say that, well, or verse 4, they'll say, well, verse 4 says He was declared the Son of God. That somehow He wasn't the Son of God until His resurrection. That is not the, the gospel. Paul is clear by saying his son in the beginning here in verse 3, before he talks about his incarnation, to show us that he is eternal. He is God. And this is important because here we're seeing a contrast between Christ's earthly ministry of weakness. Remember, he, he was... He came as a man. He suffered our weaknesses. But then we also see the other side, what he had because of his faithfulness, his obedience. What was it? Power from the, by the resurrection. So we have who was born of a, of a descendant of David. That's contrasted here with this other where it says declared the Son of God. This word declared, I, I believe, would be better translated appointed the Son of God with power. That is super important. He is not saying that He wasn't the Son of God before. What He's saying is the power that He was afforded as the Son of God was given to Him on His resurrection. That that resurrection power is what Christ is in now in eternity for us. So, His declaration, I think appointed is a better word, or, or, or ordained is another one. That's, this word is also translated in the New Testament. That He has declared or appointed the Son of God with power. This is real. Again, if we take out with power... Then that, that verse gets really sketchy. If we ignore the fact that that is together, then we, we have a problem. And so we see the, the contrast of born of the descendant of David. So what is this? His human physical de- descendancy or lineage. And that's contrasted with his heavenly lineage. He is the son of God. There he's the son of David. This is the human line, his human uh, experience, his human perspective. That's why it says according to the flesh. This is the idea of the, from the perspective of the flesh, he was born. So if, if you were living in that time and you were a a Christian, you look at, at, at Christ and say, yes, he was a descendant of David. He fulfilled those promises that were made to David. That is the human side of Christ, that, that part where Christ is the God-man, man and God fully. Then you have that contrasted in verse 4 with his deity, his divinity, and who he is after. So in the entire time from his incarnation 
to the resurrection, he lived a perfect life through the power of the Holy Spirit. That his perfection, he did not hold on to his, he didn't say, well, I have to have everything that is afforded to me as the Son of God. No, he laid aside some of his attributes, not, not saying he didn't have them, but he, he never turned to those attributes, like the ability to be everywhere at once. He didn't, he didn't know everything, which is something that all of us should be thankful that, that he shows us how to live that way. And I remember when uh, Dr. Ware came and did the, the series on the, the Trinity, I really was encouraged by that, that he shows us, he's the forerunner, he shows us what a life lived fully under the power of the Holy Spirit is like. And so Christ, the Son of God, lived in human weakness. But what happened on the day of His resurrection? He suffered and died physically. Then on His resurrection day, what did He rise up in? Power over death. His victory over death was a transformational moment in history. When He rose from the dead, what did it say? He is who He says He is. And what did Jesus say He was? The Son of God. That's why we can say, declare or appointed, that in a sense, the, the resurrection, that second part of chapter 4, declared the truth of who Jesus was the whole time. It didn't, it didn't make Him the Son of God. It proved that He was the Son of God. That He should be followed. And this is what the Gospel is about. It's about a man Christ Jesus, the Son of God, coming, living a perfect life, dying on a cross, but living, coming to life in resurrection power. And this is according to the Spirit of Holiness. Kind of a contrasting comparison with according to the flesh. So on the spiritual side, in the speaking of what is divine... From that perspective, <coughs> we see His full power. And now, He sits on high. And I want us to look this morning really quick in Matthew chapter 26. Actually, 28, sorry. I think you all might have uh, been here last week. Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. So Jesus has just given his great commission. I think it's important, let's look back at 18. Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. So we're seeing the contrast here. Christ in His perfection lived a holy life. He perfected the human experience on earth. Then His life proved that He was the Son of God and He came back to life and He was given all power 
all authority in heaven and on earth. Not just one or the other. A lot of people forget this. I think this is really important that we don't forget that His authority does not just extend to heaven. His authority is here on earth and it's been given to us. That's what the part of the Great Commission is. So He said, all this has been given to me now. Because of this, go. Therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is what Paul is talking about. He's saying, look, this Messiah, remember Matthew, when Matthew said, he's with you. His power is with you all the time. The question is, are we walking with Him? Not, is He walking with us? Oftentimes we, we stray away, but He is constantly calling us back to Himself. Walk with me. That intimacy with Christ is not something we should be afraid of. That should be what we're desiring. Lord, I want to I know You. That's why I love that, that song, I want to know you, Lord. That's, that should be our heart's cry. I want to know Christ. I want to know my God. The more I know, guess what? The l- less I know. <laughs> I feel like the more we know Christ, the more we don't understand. That doesn't mean that we don't know him more. It's just the, the whole realm of who he is becomes even greater. And then I want to look at one more place here. And Luke chapter 1, well, a couple more, sorry. Luke chapter 1. I just want us to think, too, through this spirit of holiness, how Christ came to earth through this. And so Luke chapter 1 Verse 34 and 35. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be that I am a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the Holy Christ shall be called the Son of God. So from the very beginning of Christ's earthly life, He is the Son of God. Why? Through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we see the enjoining of the two, his human and his divine nature, being joined together at his birth, his in, the incarnation of Christ. And so today we get to experience his victory, his power over sin, the victory that comes in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then John chapter 16 because it's great to talk about his victory, but many times we want to forget this promise of Christ. John 16, verse 33. So Jesus has just told them, 
talk, been talking to them about the end times, the times that are coming, the difficulties, the persecutions, all these things. And then he says in verse 33, These things have I spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. So Christ has shared all these things. And a lot of times when we hear bad news, does that give us peace? It sounds like bad news, okay? No, typically when we hear, oh, the world is going to go crazy, everything's going to go to, to pot and it's just going to get be done for, we think, man, I don't think I want to deal with that. But he's saying, I, get, I told these things to give you peace, and this is how you know you'll have peace. This peace is reconciliation with God, the fact that we know when we die where we're going to be. Jesus is... Is <coughs> saying, you're going to encounter tribulation. This is not the popular gospel that is being preached in many, peop- in many churches in the U.S. today, or in the world, period, that you'll have tribulation. Or there's the other extreme. People just think, well, your whole life's going to be terrible, and just make it through, and you'll be okay. There's the, the extreme of you're never going to encounter trouble. If you become a Christian, nothing will go wrong. Everything's going to just fall into place. And if you do all the right things, then, then God will bless you. But that's not the gospel. We are going to inter- encounter tribulation. We are going to go through trials. But in the midst of that, we can have courage and peace because He has overcome the world and He has promised to be with us. So when we encounter difficulties we don't understand, in the end we have to say, Lord, we know that You're doing all things for Your glory. We know that You are doing all things for the good of those who love You. Does that mean that God is going to give us what we think we need when we think we need it? No. That means that God will give us what we need, really need, when we really need it. God is doing a work. When He brings us through trials, when He brings us through hard times, He is doing a work in us. And at the moment that we're in the midst of it, it is hard to think, oh, this is great. This is going to be good for me. But when we get to the other side, we see, we start to see God's work in us. We start to see that though everything didn't go as we thought it should go, in the end it's for His glory and His honor. And that that includes anything that we have encountered. We don't understand the passing of some of our dear brothers and sisters in the last couple of years. We don't understand all that has gone on here at SCA. But somehow, in the midst of all this, Christ said, I am with you. I have power over the enemy, and you can trust me. Does that mean that if we do step one, two, three, four, five, that everything's going to just be perfect? No. His being with us does not mean that everything 
just there's a rainbow and and flowers and like we're in a meadow galloping along. No, that doesn't mean that. What it means is that in the midst of those things, we have peace. Why? Because we know in the end, Christ overcame the world. That we don't have to worry about what happens. That's why we, as Christians, can die in peace. That in the midst of hard trials, we can go to Him knowing that, what can the devil do to me? He can't do anything because if he kills me, guess what? I'm with the Lord. If he, if he hurts me physically, mentally, emotionally, I'm in Christ. There's no, nothing that can separate me from his love, as we will see in, in Romans chapter 8. And so, that's why I'm excited about this, the book of Romans. It's one of my favorites, like I said. But it's because of who Christ is. His humanity, his divinity, and who he is now. That his resurrection proved. And he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And we can go to him with all our needs. He has a throne of grace as we see in Hebrews. In verse 5. So he's talked about who Christ is. What the gospel is about in a sense. And then he says, verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. I think it's important that he starts with grace. He sees, this is the thing about the book of Romans, he is constantly hammering home that it is of grace that we are saved. That it is His grace that we could even believe that nothing that we do can bring us into right relationship with God. It's all in Christ, His resurrection power that transforms us. It's it's kind of strange that He uses the plural we. Like, is He talking about Himself alone? Is He talking about the other apostles? Because He talks about... We have received grace and apostleship to bring obedience of, about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake. I don't know. There's a lot of different people that say one thing or another. I don't think it makes a difference of whether he's talking about himself or the other apostles. Because through the apostles, all the nations heard the gospel of their time. All that they knew. And... <coughs> So, his apostleship was received by grace for what purpose? What does it say? To bring about the obedience of faith. I feel like Paul is really clear here that they're intertwined. And if we, if we do a study of obedience and faith in the New Testament, even in the Old Testament, they're, they're inseparable. They're different, but they're inseparable. They're so tied together. There's a, a commentary by a, a man named Douglas Moo that I really like, and he said, 
People cannot truly obey God without first bowing the knee to the Lord Jesus in faith. And that's the thing. We come to Christ in faith through the Holy Spirit's regenerating work. And what does He do? He empowers us to obey. That's, that's what Ezekiel 36 is all about. The new birth. It gives us that power. And I want us to read that just in case we've forgotten. You can turn there if you want. But Ezekiel 36, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, 25 and through 27, and I will clean you. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you'll be careful to observe my ordinances. It's not till Christ does the regenerating work in us that we even desire truly to obey God. The only reason there are people in this world who we would consider good who are not believers is because. They have a selfish reason for doing good things. They want a good name in the community. They, it, there's so many different reasons. They know that if they're good, then the police won't bother them. That's another reason. Um, but all those, those things are selfish. It's to build themselves up. Oh, maybe, maybe if I'm good enough, then I'll get a plaque on the wall at City Hall saying that I'm so-and-so. Or um, maybe they'll make a... Maybe they'll give, make me a, a nice uh, statue of me, you know, 100 years down the road and talk about the great things I did for this community. That's not, that's not Christian. We should be hoping that when people hear of us, they know that person is a Christian. And I know this is kind of off topic, but our obedience comes from faith. It is always the result of faith. If we believe, we obey. That means sometimes there are things we don't understand. And the Lord says, hey, I want, I want you to step out in faith. I want you to, to do this and trust me. And guess what? We obey because we believe. We don't obey because it feels good, because it makes sense all the time. We obey because we believe God. I, I just think of many times in my life, just a, a more recent example, when I felt like the Lord was calling me to go to seminary. I didn't know why. We just moved back from Guatemala, so we didn't have very much money. I mean, it was like month to month kind of deal, week to week. And so Meg and I, when we prayed, we said, Lord, if this is your will, then you're going to have to provide money. Guess what? He's provided it. Every, every time the school year comes around, there's money. I don't know where it comes from. Well, I do. God. <laughs> but it's like the Lord gets all, all the, the work in a, such a way that the money is there when we need it. And it's, it, it's all coming from different places. I mean, this spring it was from tax money that I didn't even pay in. I don't know how it came back. I love kids. 
Um, or, or one year it was from the sale of a house that I never thought would happen. And another year it was, it's just amazing how God provides for what he calls us to do. And so our obedience is not always the result of that makes sense. Actually, most of the time it's the world thinks I'm crazy. The world thinks this is ridiculous. But in faith, we obey. Faith and, like I said, faith and obedience are so tied together. And, I, and you will see that in the, the book of Romans if you don't just gloss over those passages. And that's why I think Paul and James are so close. James' emphasis is more on the works that come from faith. And Paul is more here in the book of Romans emphasizing the faith that is required so that we can have good works. But they're both preaching the same gospel. They are not in, you know, fighting it out through letters. So this obedience of faith is so important for our walk with the Lord. And this is obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. In my version, it says Gentiles. I actually like, um, I think the, the King James says nations. I'm not sure, um, or some translations say that. And so it could be either. Many times, it's the same word. They use the same word for Gentiles and nations in the New Testament. But oftentimes, depending on the context, they'll translate it Gentiles, and other times they'll just translate it nations. It's the same word. You will preach the gospel to all nations. Same word um, there. So... Whether it's all nations or Gentiles, what he's saying is this obedience of faith should be seen in everyone. And I, I believe that's what he's saying. That he, it doesn't necessarily matter that he's saying specifically Gentiles. Or, because whether, if you're going to be a believer, your faith will result in obedience. That your faith will result in obedience. And one of those first steps of obedience is baptism, for example. Um, that's an obedience to the Lord, which goes back again to the Great Commission. Then he says, for his namesake. It's for his glory. It's for God's glory. It's not about, oh, Whatever the church is that sent them out, Paul's not, he hasn't mentioned once the book, the, the church in Antioch. That was the church that commissioned them, that ordained them and sent them out. But he hasn't talked about Antioch once. Why? Because God is the one who sins. God is supposed to get the glory. If we're in that, in the train from the, the commissioning of God, putting it on our hearts to see, the gifting of God for someone to do a, a specific work of ministry, then great. But it's not about us becoming, oh, that church is, they're known for, you know, their worldwide missions. That's, that's great, but it should be, they are known for preaching the gospel of Jesus to the world. They are, they are fulfilling the Christian call. And he says in verse 6, Among whom you also 
are the called of Jesus Christ. I think it's important to see this. They are also called. It's a different calling, but it's the same word. So if you look back at verse 1, called as an apostle, same word called. And here we see called of Jesus Christ. So just like Paul, the disciples, the church in Rome, whether it was multiple groups or one church, are also called. All of us are called, period. Now what our purpose is, what God is calling us to, may differ. We're all called to share the gospel, kind of like what Brother Bobby was saying this morning. I I thought he was going to steal my message, in in part. But um, if you are called to be a disciple of Christ, you are also called to make disciples. I don't know if you all listen what y'all listened to last Sunday. Did y'all watch that one? Yeah, so HB, he's one of my favorites. Um, you all weren't here, you should go. I'll send you a link. <laughs> but he was talking about the Great Commission, and, and we are all called. He didn't just say, oh, you're apostles, you go do the work of evangelizing, and then everybody else just live. No, we are all called in our daily lives to share the gospel with our words and our actions. A lot of times it starts with our actions because if our actions don't line up with our words, it doesn't matter what we say, right? And vice versa. If we, if we live one way and then talk another, they have to, it has to be both, words and actions. So we are all called To be his disciples. In verse 7, to finish, I know it's a shorter sermon for me. Y'all are going to get a leg up on everybody else. It says, to all who are beloved of God in Rome. I think this is, this again speaks to that intimacy with, with God. And There's a commentary that I've been reading I I really like on the book of Romans. And he says this of, of this phrase. He says, Beloved of God points to the intimacy and tenderness of the love of God the Father. The embrace of His people in the bosom of His affection. And I think that is so true. When we are beloved by the Lord, we see the book of Romans is full of this picture of Christ drawing people to himself and then we see in book in Romans chapter 8 probably one of the best sermons I've heard on our adoption was John did a really good message on that a while back and just being adopted as sons that we are joint heirs with Christ that is I mean talk about the tenderness of love that it should be whether we had good parents good fathers or not in our lives God's love is a tender love. It is a love that doesn't just, it it draws us to intimacy with Him. It's not just about, you know, He's there and I'm here. No, it's He wants that relationship with us. That's why He called us. He's called us to be intimate with Him, to, to know Him intimately, and to love Him in the same way. 
do, are there times when I don't feel that love? Yes. But that's my fault, not his. He constantly draws himself, draws me back to himself, constantly working in my life to show me his love, to show me his mercy. So he loves us. He draws us to himself, and it's for the purpose that we would be called as saints. And I talked about sanctification a while back, but I will again say that we are all called to be saints. We are either a saint or we are an ain't. I think Mr. Hamilton used to say that pretty often. Um, And he says this here, this same uh, commentary. Called to be saints or called as saints places the emphasis on the effectual character of the divine action by which believers become saints. It was by divine summons. The king called us to himself, called us to his throne room and said, Be holy as I am holy. And then verse later on in this same commentary he says, Though it is without doubt the idea of being set apart to God, that this is the forefront of the word in the word saints, yet it is impossible to disassociate from the term the holiness of character which is the complement of such consecration. Believers are sanctified by the Spirit and, as will appear in the further teaching of this epistle, the most characteristic feature of a believer is that he is holy in heart and manner of life. That as Christians, this again goes back to that faith and obedience, obedience of faith, that as believers, God calls us out. He summons us to His throne room and says, Believe, follow me, come and enjoin yourself with me, know me. But he doesn't just call us to do that, he calls us to be holy, to be a light in a dark world, to be different. We're called to be saints. And finally, in verse 7, Paul gives them a greeting that he uses fairly regularly, but I think it's important to think about this. He says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Think of that grace, unmerited favor from the Lord. We didn't deserve His calling us. We didn't deserve to be beloved. We we were His enemies. Remember that? We were the enemies of God. And we'll see, the wrath of God was against us. But when Christ died on the cross, and He called us out, summoned us to be His sons through the blood of Christ, that changed everything. And that led... To the peace. Peace has this idea of reconciliation. When a nation is fighting another nation, you, you, oh, we're on the battlefield, we're going to lose. Let's put the white flag up. Okay, now, what does a white flag mean? Unconditional surrender. We don't get a choice. When we meet up, they set the terms. But guess what? When those terms are set, There will be peace. There will be no more war. We will be reconciled to those people. 
In the same way, when peace is made with God, that, that's the interesting thing. If we think of the grace of God, we were at war. We were the enemies of God. And then through Christ, He makes a no, new way of peace. He says, you don't have to fight me anymore. You can be incorporated into my kingdom. You can be my children, my sons and daughters through Christ. God drew up the plans. The only thing is to believe and obey. I mean, not many uh, peace accords are that good, are there? It's typically the winning party wants the other party to pretty much die you know, that the reparations of war. You know, we want you to give us all that you have because you lost. But what's the opposite in this case? Christ, God, the Father, the Holy Spirit, they gave us all. He sacrificed all so that we could be at peace with Him. And so I think it's important that Paul, in his benediction or, or, or opening statement here uses these two together. That it is by the grace of God that Christ came, died for us, so that He can make peace with us. This is so outside of the world's mindset. Because the world, when somebody does us wrong, we want them to pay back. But when we did wrong to God, He forgave us. He loved us. And he drew, him, drew us to himself. We didn't want anything to do with him. We were fighting. I mean, I, I want us to go back and look. I, I, maybe I feel like the sermon's not long enough, but <laughs> I'm joking. But I, I just want us to think here, look here at Paul. I mean, this is us. This is who we were. I lost it here. Okay. All we need to see is verse 1. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. So Paul was there, Saul, was there at the martyrdom of Stephen. They were laying their coats at his feet. And then verse 9 it says, or chapter 9 verse 1, Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that he, that if he found any belonging to the way, Christianity, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. That's us. When we were not with Christ, we were breathing threats and murder against His disciples. Or, verse 4, He sees the light, and it says, He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to Him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting Me? That was us. 
Paul understood this better than anyone. And I think that's why he loved this phrase, this grouping of words, because he understood who he was. He hated the truth until Christ opened his eyes by the Holy Spirit to see the truth as truth. Paul thought he was following the truth, but it was a lie. He was an enemy of God, but now he knew peace. And that's what he wants for the believers here in Rome. He wants them to know peace of God. He wants them to know what it's like to be reconciled with God. And so he's writing this letter to let them know the true and full gospel. What he understands of the gospel. And this grace and peace is not from, day, from Paul. Who is it from? God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. This peace does not come to us by man's words, man's actions. God may use men to speak to us, but it's in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ that we have grace and peace. So next time, we'll see him talking to the people here and, and getting to the crux of what he's going to say at, if you think about it in Romans chapter 16 and 17. That's the, if you want to encapsulate the book of Romans, it's Romans 1, 16 and 17. A book that has led to many reformations. Men like Augustine, if you've heard of him, he was, it's when he read Romans that he realized he needed salvation that he had been trying to work, and he was saved. And then you have Luther. That was how he realized that being a monk was no value to him, that he was trying to earn his way into right standing with God. And then you have the Wesley brothers. Both of them were transformed by this book. I'm not saying that the rest of the Bible is not helpful, that it's not God's Word. I'm not saying that. But this book is one of God's to me, is one of the, the greatest books on understanding and expounding the gospel of Christ. It's something we need to know. If we don't understand the gospel, how can we share it? How can we see others transformed by this gospel? That doesn't mean the Holy Spirit can't work through imperfect people, because He can. He does. But um, So I, I pray that you all are as excited as I am to go through this more in depth and to see what God is saying through Paul to the Romans and to us. And uh, so let's pray and trust the Lord will speak to us. Lord, we need you. We We can't even come into your presence without your grace, the blood of Christ covering us. We thank you that you draw us into your presence, Lord. Oh, Father, put in us a, a love for you, a love for your word, that we de would delight in you, find pleasure in you, and know, Father, that you are with us and care for us. Your spirit is 
with us. We thank you for that. And we ask, Lord, that we, like Paul, would see the glory of the gospel, that we would delight in sharing it with others and desire to see the lost saved. Father, help us to see your justice, your mercy, and your grace. We pray that you would be with us today as we go and that you would help us to delight in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thou art worthy, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory, glory and honor, glory and honor and power, for Thou hast Hast all things created, Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are created, Thou art worthy, O Lord, Thou art worthy. Thou art worthy, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory, glory and honor, glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created Hast all things created, Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are created, Thou art worthy, O Lord. Amen.